Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is singer, songwriter, and one of the principal members of the Moody Blues, Justin Hayward. Justin joined the group shortly after the release of their first album, and along with fellow new member John Lodge, helped evolve the band's sound from their R&B and blues beginnings to a unique blend of rock and classical, creating what some have called the very first symphonic rock album with 1967's legendary release, Days of Future Past. Justin has written and sung 20 of the Moody Blues' 27 post-1967 singles, including Nights in White Satin, Tuesday Afternoon, and Question. In the mid-70s, the Moody Blues took a four-year break, but returned in the early 80s with hit after hit, including The Voice, Gemini Dream, I Know You're Out There Somewhere, and Your Wildest Dreams. All told, the Moody Blues have sold over 70 million albums worldwide. In 2018, Justin was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and in 2022, he was appointed Officer of the Order of the British Empire for lifetime service to the music industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Very happy to welcome our guest today, live from Northern Italy, Justin Hayward. Hi, Justin. Pete, no, lovely to be with you. Thank you for joining us. We call this program Rock and Roll High School, and it's an opportunity for our listeners to learn about the history of contemporary music from those who helped create it. And you have been creating such incredible music you know, for over, well over 50 years now, that it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And I look forward to um, really diving in and discussing all the incredible music that you have helped create. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. So you were born, we'll start in the beginning. You were born in Swindon, which is in Southwest England in Wiltshire, a town between Bristol and Reading. You were born right after the end of World War II, the son of two teachers, and your interest in music started early, I read, that when you were little and your grandfather gave you some records. What do you remember about that? Yes. So after the war, the, most houses seemed to have a piano because they were subsidized, I think, that like a home entertainment kind of thing. So there was a piano in the front room, and my grandfather had a nice collection of 78 records which he, my grandmother didn't share his love of but um anyway he he loved them and so when he died he passed that record player to me and my brother my brother wasn't interested in, really in my grandfather's records but i thought i thought them quite um enjoyable and and uh, fun so we had a wind-up gramophone. We we got a we got a forty-five and tried to play that on it. It it, it kind of worked actually. So uh, I found that collection 
strange and fascinating. Any specific titles come to mind from your grandfather's 78 collection? There was one thing that was called Inner Persian Market, probably quite politically incorrect now. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a song. It was just a piece of music, suggestive of um, middle, what we thought were Middle Eastern things, what a, a British band would think was Middle Eastern things <laughs> on, on the radio. And, and that was nice. And uh, there was a, a few other odd things in it. I, I, I can't really remember too many of them. You know, I, you'd have to give me half an hour to remember some of them. Your first instrument after that was the ukulele. Is that right? Yes. So I knew about guitars and wanted one and kept pestering my parents for one. And they said, OK, you want a guitar? We'll get you a ukulele. So it was like, oh, God, defeated. So uh, I knew how to play the ukulele. It was pretty easy. Ding, 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 ding. You know, it's like the top four strings of a guitar, but with the top string tuned tuned high. But the chords are kind of the same. So I learned to play that, and then I kept pestering them for a, for a guitar, and they bought me a guitar when I was um, 10. And I read that when you were a teenager, you bought the guitar, a Gibson 335, that you ended up using and still use throughout your career. Uh, is that right? No, it's not, Pete. No, that's that's a, that's a shame. I must try and correct that sometime. But trying, trying to do anything with, you know, I don't look at Wikipedia anyway. So God forbid I should try and correct the multitude of things that are on there. But I was earning enough in semi-pro groups around Swindon because it was a very vibrant, lively music scene, live music scene. And I was earning enough money with the groups that I was in to buy myself a 335. So in 1963, I did buy a uh, cherry red 335. And I think there's still some pictures of it around. It didn't have the Bigsby on. And then I was with Marty Wilde. I was lucky enough to get a job with Marty Wilde. But about... Two years later, just before I joined the Moody's, I just run out of money and I sold it. Oh. And only about a week or two weeks later, Mike Pinder from the Moody's called me. And then I met Mike and I realized I needed, I'd been just playing acoustic guitar, writing on acoustic guitar on an old 12 string, but I didn't have an electric. So um, I went out and bought the cheapest guitar I could find which at that time was a, a brand new but it was 65 telecaster and it wasn't until about 18 months later or a year later that i got the 335 you know i came back home to find myself a lovely 335 again wow the same year 63 year yeah well let's back up for a second because you mentioned marty wilde and marty wilde may not be a name that is recognized by a lot of our listeners especially those in the States. In the UK, Marty Wilde is much more well-known in the late 50s as one of the leading British rock and roll guys with Tommy Steele, with Cliff Richard and the Shadows. Those of us of a certain age may know Marty Wilde better as the father of Kim Wilde, who had some big hits in the 80s in America and all over the world. But Marty Wilde had a band called the Wild Three, and you yes. were part of that band when you were 17 years old. Is that right? 
That's right. Yes. When I met audition for Marty, he still had a band called the Wildcats. But he his idea was to his his wife, Joyce, is a beautiful singer. She was part of a group called the Vernon's Girls in Liverpool. And I think when I auditioned for Marty and got the gig, he thought, wouldn't it be nice? Because we're both quite tall people. Marty's six foot five to do the three of us with a nice sort of vocal blend. And that's what we did. And I was lucky enough to be with Marty for about 18 months, yeah. And I read that you and Marty are still friendly. Marty is still my hero. I love him. And um, yes, I love him very much. I see him three or four times a year. I love Mart, and he was the biggest influence in my life. He was writing songs under a different name because he he had a lousy publishing deal, not (laughs) unusual. And he told me then, really, to survive in the business, you have to write your own songs and create your own identity. And I started really writing when I was with Marty. Wow. Yeah. You know, interestingly, there are many accolades that you and the Moody Blues have received in your career. But one of them, speaking specifically to your songwriting prowess in 2013 at the Ivor Novellos, you were given the PRS for Music Award for Outstanding Achievement, which was presented to you by Marty Wilde. So that's right. That is very nice. Another name I got a kick out of just doing some homework for today, who I think your experience was was less enjoyable, but it's a name that anyone who knows the history of early British music knows the name Lonnie Donegan. And speaking of publishing, you signed when you were a teenager, you signed a publishing contract with Lonnie Donegan's company, Tyler Music. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Lonnie was top of the bill at, um, we did a summer season in Great Yarmouth, uh, about 16 weeks at this um, this place. And, and Lonnie was actually, I don't think Lonnie was top of the bill. I think a thing called the Waltzing Waters, which was, um, spray that sort of went up and down and um, and to, to music. I think that was top of the bill. Yeah, but uh, I met Lonnie then. Hard act to follow. Yes. <laughs> Spraying water. Yes, yeah. For those who don't know the name Lonnie Donegan, Lonnie Donegan specialized in a style of music called skiffle, which later influenced the Beatles and the Who and, and a lot of the, the rock bands coming of age in, in the 60s. But all of that leads to you joining the Moody Blues in 1966 on the recommendation of Eric Burden of The Animals. Is that right? Yes. So I sent my songs. I signed with Lonnie and I made a a couple of demos in the um, Essex Music office. And I was lucky enough to get a a couple of early records with Pi as well. But nothing much was, was happening for me. And I would answer ads in The Melody Maker, which was a newspaper that all musicians read in the, well, th- the 50s and the 60s. It was a lovely paper. I, I really miss it. And it wasn't just for musicians. It was about music. But it was it was well-written, good journalism, and crisp and nice, you know. So uh, I was often answering ads in there. And, like, when I auditioned for Marty, I didn't know it was Marty. But I, w- I went for the audition, and Marty Wilde opened the door. But with Eric, I knew it was Eric, and I read that Eric needed a guitar player. I sent some songs to Eric Burden. I heard nothing from Eric. I did know somebody in his office quite well, so it didn't surprise me that I didn't hear anything. But about two weeks later, that's when I had the call from 
Mike Pinder, who said, oh, Eric passed me your songs and your demos, my acetates that I'd made. That was the foundation of uh, my relationship, really, with Mike and then the Moody's. Wow. Well, for those who don't know, the Moody Blues existed for a few years prior to your joining and had had a big hit with Denny Lane, who we interviewed a few years ago for this program called Go Now, which was a cover of a Bessie Banks song. It was a big hit, number one in the UK in the mid-60s. And then Denny and Clint Warwick left the band in 66, and you and John Lodge joined the Moody Blues in 1966. You had just turned 20 years old. That's really young. Uh, yeah, I was 19 when I met um, Mike, and I would have been... Yeah, no, I think I was 19 at the time. Yeah, 1960. Yeah, I was 19. I was going to be 20 in the October. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the the Moody's were together that long, to be quite honest. There was a quick... It was put together by some sort of money men and managers out of a few groups in Birmingham. Right. And with that one song, I can't say that the group had been around for a few years. I think it was more like a few months. I had read 64, they got together, and then... Yeah. Had it would have been 65, go now. Right, 65, go now, and then 66, Denny leaves. Denny, yeah. Paul McCartney and Wings a few years later, and you yeah. and John Lodge joined the band. What were your expectations joining this band? Because obviously the sound of the band on Go Now versus the sound that you and John ended up creating with Mike and the other Moody's was very different. Were you just, you know, okay, I'm joining a band, here's John Lodge, and he and I are going to join these three other guys, and we're just going to start m making music? Were there any conversations about stylistically what we, you were going to do? Um, no, there was conversations about where we were going to live and how, how we were going to find petrol to put in a car. That was about <laughs> the only conversation. I think Denny had a wonderful voice for that kind of rhythm and blues stuff. I think Mike saw, always saw the group kind of differently. It wasn't that he decided or uh, chose a, a different route. The fact was, I was lousy at singing rhythm and blues, but I could sing different kind of stuff. I think before me and John joined, it was a cover band. It was basically a cover band doing nice rhythm and blues things with the blue suits. And when I joined, that's what we still did. It's just that I was lousy at it. <laughs> and I think once our price had dropped to about 25 quid i think the only thing we could do was to have a go with our own songs and see and see what happened i can promise you there was no plan <laughs> there was no kind of expectations when when you're that age it's just you're just getting by you think about next week and like i said where you're going to live right your girlfriend and how you're going to put petrol in the car right honestly that there's no i wish there was a plan about how things were going to work, but there wasn't. We were doing a few cover songs. What, what we ended up doing was a two 45-minute set. One 45 minutes was the rhythm and blues that we weren't very good at, that was from the Denny time, because Denny was good at that. Yeah. He did have the voice for that. And then the second 45 was our own songs, which people would think, what's this then, you know? But if, if they were coming out to see you based on the expectation of Go Now, well, Denny had left the group, so they weren't going to hear that vocal. Yeah. 
like you said, you guys weren't very good at it, or you weren't very good at singing in that style. But thankfully, um, they know Ray were very good at it. <laughs> but yeah. thanks to Marty, you were good at honing your craft and and writing your songs. I love the story of how the Moody's were in debt to Decca, and the story that I heard, and and please clarify it if it's not correct, was that the band owed money to Decca, and there was somebody at DECA, an A&R man named Hugh Mendel, who was interested in, back then, it was the early days of stereo recording, right? This is the mid to late 60s. And DECA was known, and still is known, as a classical label. And they were selling classical albums in stereo, and it was somebody's idea, hey, we should record rock music in stereo and have a rock band record some of these classical pieces in stereo. And I read that there was talk of Dvorak's New World Symphony, but a funny thing happened on the way to the studio. You met some amazing people, you know, with Hugh and with Peter Knight. You want to talk about what happened there? I think you've just said it all. You've just, you just, <laughs> you just done it, Pete. That's exactly right. What you said, yeah. Hugh Mendel was um, was such a lovely man, and Decca was run by really elegant elderly gentlemen, and they also had a consumer division. So the their motive also for doing this, let's see how rock and roll works for stereo and and juxtaposition it against classical music. They were trying to move their stereo consumer stuff, like radiograms. Really nice radiograms, all wood and uh, lovely mahogany. But apart from that, you've said it. Yes, I mean, I think Dvorak was mentioned maybe for an afternoon, right? That's of uh, by uh, Michael Dacre Barclay, who was the head of uh, special projects there. But it was Hugh Hugh Mendel, and we used to call him Huge Model. But Hugh Mendel, <laughs> I dearly loved. I I loved him. I loved. You know, I loved all these people. They were just great. Of course, we were just long-haired Herberts, a bit stoned, really, not, not <laughs> taking it that seriously. But we knew that it was um, that it was that it was good. Yeah, we did have a debt. So what it meant was that they had a call on us. And so when they had this idea, I think we were the obvious choice. And 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 huge model knew that we were we could do a kind of job at it and also it coincided up with us with an instrument called the mellotron which i'm sure you're going to mention i hope you are but but that's that that was the thing that made particularly my song sound right before that mike was playing piano or a vox continental but the Mellotron with that orchestral sound made my songs work. And so I think Hugh and Peter Knight had heard that. And like I said, the Dvorak was mentioned for an afternoon. I think I think Peter Knight knocked that one on the head when he said, you came to see us at the 100 Club. Well, Peter Knight, again, is a name that not a lot of our listeners might know. And it really seems like he played a very pivotal role in the creation of that album. Oh, totally melding the rock and roll band that the five of you were 
you know, were out gigging as a five piece. And what he did is he brought in orchestrations and real symphonic players. There were actually a symphony that Decca had under contract and they were given the fictional name of the London Festival Orchestra. Yeah, we thought up that name. That's pretty good. To make it sound very sophisticated. And- yeah, I bet Bibo, I love the, I love the festival orchestra, super stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what's incredible is the record that you created going in to pay off a debt to Decca ends up becoming Days of Future Past, one of the most influential albums of all time. Well, eventually, it didn't happen, it did, not at the time. Well, it took five years to, to, <laughs> to people to even really bother to listen to it. But that record, if you listen to it now, it's so interesting because it is one of the first albums to combine rock and roll music and classical music. And the fact that you guys were recording your own songs and then Peter would come in and write charts to intersperse between the songs with the, quote, London Festival Orchestra. It's really the one of the earliest examples I can think of of symphonic rock. That had never really been done before in, the, in that way. I can't agree with you, actually, because I think that our songs, we, we had four songs that Peter really got familiar with. I mean, all of this happened in about within about two weeks, 10 days. So, so we had a few of these songs we were doing in our stage set, which he would have seen at the 100 Club, which was nights, nights in white satin, Tuesday afternoon, another morning, and dawn is a feeling. I think that those four, they were the things that influenced him, and I think those are the things that he based his orchestrations on. But there wasn't a time when we were doing symphonic rock together he right. was playing the interpretations of these themes. If you listen to the the whole intro part and the links, they're to do with either nights, Tuesday, another morning, right. or dawn is a feeling. And but our stuff is very nice, well recorded, nicely made pop records that probably nobody was going to listen to because they weren't kind of three minute mono epics kind of stuff. But that's the kind of stuff that we were doing. I don't think we thought ourselves as oh well, let's. Let's invent symphonic rock. But it's so interesting. I mean, whether you set out to do it or not, this coming together of the five of you and Peter Knight with, what did you say, huge middling? Huge muddle. Huge muddle. Affectionately, only because we loved him so much that we could say that. I have a fond place in my heart for any A&R guy who is uh, contributing to the extent that he did. But you mentioned Nights in White Satin, which is now 50 plus years later, one of the most recognized songs of all time. Nights in White Satin, never reaching the end. Letters I've written, never meaning to send. With these eyes before. 
And it's just incredible if you listen to it. There is so much going on. There's a beautifully written copyright by you, which is a pop song. Then you have what Peter was doing before and after. And then you have Graham's poetry. Graham Edge, one of your bandmates, writing poetry that's recited by Mike Pinder, who you mentioned. Um, and so when you listen to it, it's... It's a whole experience, and the album itself is a concept about the life of an everyman one day in the life. So I had heard you do an interview where you're like, well, Nights in White Satin is the night, and I want I, I want the afternoon, so I'm going to write a song called Tuesday Afternoon. Yeah. So there's dawn, there's lunch break. There, you know, it's, it's fascinating. Morning, yeah. It's really a concept record. And one thing that I realized as I was listening to it and thinking about when this was all happening, there were 18 months that all of these records were released in the U by, by artists based in the UK at the time, starting in May of 1967, Sgt. Pepper. November of 1967, Days of Future Past, your record. December of 1967, a month later, The Stones' Satanic Majesty's Request. In 1968, just a few months later, was our former podcast guests, The Zombies, Rod Argent and Colin Blundstone's Odyssey and Oracle. And then a couple of months after that was Village Green Preservation Society by The Kinks. So those are five of the most influential records all coming out within 18 months of each other. Talk about a time and a place. Yeah. Well, I have to say that um, our, our whole lives of that particular generation, yes, but there was one after another. Come on. I mean, there was, for me, there was Johnny Ray. It's like, oh, yes, beautiful. Elvis, yes. Everly Brothers, one after another, though. The Everly's, yeah. Buddy Holly, whoa, this is fantastic. Cliff Richard in the Shadows, oh, it gets even more wonderful. The, the Beatles, yes. You know, can you imagine for a young person? So I, I, t I take your point about these things happening in that kind of summer of love. But up until that point, there were always these events happening to me, as a as a as a person who loved pop music and and records, that were just regularly happening all the time, and I would expect another one next next week, you know, <laughs> to come along. I would expect to go out and buy a record next week that was going to really turn me on, and that was that was going to deliver the goods and not let me down. Right, that was the thing. I think the thing in 1966 with Hugh Mendel, Michael Dacre Barclay, Sir Edward Lewis. And the head of EMI, you would know him, Sir Somebody or other. <laughs> Sir um, somebody. <laughs> yeah, it was a light bulb moment for them because these companies had fantastic recording studios and that's what made it happen. And they decided to give the studio time to long-haired Stone Herbert, me personally, I have to admit I was, but long-haired Herberts like us. And they had these wonderful studios with fantastic engineers yeah. to collect this thing. It wasn't a sort of random thing that you could do, but but there was a discipline about it. That's what made the difference, the recording studios, high EMI, Decca, all of those places. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that this was started as somebody's idea of an experiment for your band recording in stereo sound. And I had heard, uh, yeah, that was, I had, yeah. had heard you give an interview where you said that even across the road at Abbey Road, 
down the road. Yeah. Down the road, their stereo recordings were, were nothing compared to what you guys were doing at DECA. No, that surprised me. That surprised me. They didn't pay that much attention to it. I don't know why they didn't, but uh, Decca were just ahead of the game. That and, uh, but I think probably because mono was was king, and m- mono meant that it jumped out of the radio, whereas stereo. The uh, seriously, I mean, the levels were were quieter. Right. But we were brought to America by Bill Graham. And we walked into these radio stations and it was like, hey, man, this is brilliant. You know, it's a stereo FM in stereo. What else have we got to play? It was the early days of FM radio in America. And the way that these records were recorded sounded so great on this new FM frequency that it really, you know, as you guys were here, brought over by Bill Graham, as you mentioned, playing the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West, really getting this stereophonic sound out there for people to hear and then discover and come see the band live. But let's go back and talk about the creation of Nights in White Satin. But just qualify, Pete, AM was still king. Right. I said that just before, yeah, AM, and and mono was the thing. AM and mono was the thing, yeah. And mono versus FM stereo. But let's talk about the creation of Nights in White Satin, because is it correct that someone had given you a set of white satin sheets and that was the inspiration to write the song? You don't know what you read, if it's true or not, so I have to Yes, ask. no, thank you. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of sort of mixed up thoughts. It's the thoughts of um of a uh, of me you know nobody ever asked me in the first 3 or 4 years after nights so i didn't have to think about it <laughs> but i it, it was a, a collection of random thoughts that made sense to me right at that time and the satin sheets were one i was at the end of a big love affair and at the beginning of another one which when you're 20 years old is really, really important in your life. And um, I did write letters never meaning to send. So, uh, and I did look at people and think, you know, where are we all going? What, what is it? Of course I I did. So it's a, it's a collection of those random thoughts. And, um, but it makes it's every time I sing it, it makes perfect sense to me, but I never do a very good job of explaining it. Well, you don't need to. I mean, that's the brilliance um, and the wonder of art is once you create it, it can be, you know, whatever the listener wants it to be. I mean, we a couple of years ago on this podcast, we interviewed Jimmy Webb. And, you know, how many people have asked Jimmy Webb, what what does someone left the cake out in the rain mean? He's like, I don't know. You know, it just sounded right at the time. So that that's the beauty of art. But no, I think I do know, though. I think I do know, but I'm just not very good at explaining it. To me, it puts me, it's pictures in my mind that put me in a place. And I know exactly it, every one of the lines makes perfect sense to me. But there'll be something in the future that we put on our heads and that will explain our own senses and sensibilities and and feelings <laughs> that we yeah, I mean, but, share them better than we can with words. You don't need to explain it because the song, you know, so many years later just speaks for itself. It still sounds brilliant. You can hear the brilliance of the of the stereo recording. What was your take 
on late lament, obviously what we talked about before, all written by Graham and recited by Mike at the end of the album version of Nights in White Satin. What did you think? Did you think that it meshed with what you were doing? I was always completely mesmerized by by Mike's voice. Mike uh, had one of those voices that could draw you in. As a person sitting next to you in a room, it would draw me in, always. And I'd be, you know, he, Mike was a lovely guitar player too. So everybody, I, the, all of those four guys are from a def, different part of England than I'm from. So they were from different backgrounds. They were, from, I have to say, working class backgrounds. And I was from a middle class background. So we didn't have that much philosophically in common but mike's voice drew me in and the way he played uh, so whatever he did it was just great by me and those those things uh, i thought peter took those words that mike the graham wrote that mike spoke and put such beautiful emptiness around them that was so meaningful yeah, I, I think that whole thing from nights from the beginning, you know, from Breathe Deep, The Gathering Gloom, everything is just great. Breathe deep, the gathering gloom. Watch lights fade from every room. Bedsitter people look back and lament. Another day's useless energy spent. Impassioned lovers wrestle as one. Lonely man cries for love and has none. New mother picks up and settles her son. Senior citizens wish they were young. We never thought anybody was going to hear it. That's the important thing. So <laughs> it, it's it's not as if we thought, oh, we're making something important. Right. It's just we're, we're, nobody's ever going to hear this. So let's just uh, do this. <laughs> and, and peace, I love that. But it's so spellbinding what, that combination of Graham's words, Mike's voice, your song, and Peter's arrangements. I found it interesting. One of my favorite groups of all time, Peter Knight ended up working with a few years later. That's the Carpenters, the arrangement of calling occupants of interplanetary craft. But unfortunately, Peter passed away almost 40 years ago now. So his name is probably not as well known as it should be. But the other interesting thing about Nights in White Satin is that it was released as part of the Days of Future Past album in 1967, but in America, it became a massive hit single five years later. Mm -hmm. Was that odd to you? Well, something's going to grow on you, I suppose, but we had great success in France almost immediately, and it got in the lower end of the charts in the, in the UK. So I think... Um, it just took that long. And I think that the, the, the record company, things things moved so quickly. I mean, they didn't release Nights in, at first because I think the promo people at London Records said, you know, well, you can't you, you can't dance to it. It's, a, it's, long, it's slow. It's got that sort of solo. It's like, what's going on? And um, they released a severely edited Tuesday afternoon. Which was a hit. I'm looking at myself, reflections of my mind.
that was also your song written by you, Tuesday Afternoon, a song that everybody would recognize if they heard it. And that's a good opportunity to talk about the Mellotron that we mentioned earlier, because the Mellotron wizard of the Moody's was Mike Pinder. So you want to talk about Mike and the Mellotron? Well, Mike had worked for um, the, co the company Mellotronics, I think, um, just a, a couple of years earlier. And we knew in the group that the that the piano and the or the continental vox continental weren't really making it to uh yes for, for us they, they were all right for that rhythm and bluesy stuff but they weren't good for for our songs that mike and myself were writing mike said oh, i i knew this and he'd heard about this uh, a mellotron which was basically a sound effects machine it had um a double manual and it had a load of um Funny noises that they were really meant for radio, like trains going through tunnels, cockerels and dogs barking and boing, funny springs and that kind of stuff. But it had one section that was kind of orchestral sounds. And Mike doubled up on all those orchestral sounds and made the Mellotron really work. There was a few in the studio. I think the Beatles, there was one in, in the Abbey Road as well. But um, Mike made one that we could actually move around and use on stage and put through an amplifier. And that was the difference. So um, when Peter Knight heard us, our songs, like I say, those particular four songs that um, were probably most influential to Peter, the Mellotron was a big part of those on stage already. You guys were playing out live with Mike's Mellotron. Yes. Mike took out all of the big transformers and... Uh, and amplifier stuff that wasn't necessary and made it kind of, you know, four of us could get it up the stairs. Which is kind of revolutionary for the time because nobody else was doing that. Is it true that Mike recommended the Mellotron, speaking of Abbey Road, to the Beatles, who ended up using it on Strawberry Fields Forever? Or was that, is that a uh, something mythologically that we read about now and like, oh, yes, of course that happened? The Mellotron was one of those things that for a year or so before we started using it was shoved up in the corner of a couple of recording studios for radio things like comedy and stuff or the BBC Got it. for sound effects, things that went boing and, you know, Spike, <laughs> what's his name? Spike, um, Spike Jones, Spike Jones type stuff. Yeah, that's what it was used for. What's interesting is the Moody's not only instrumentation-wise used the Mellotron, but there were a lot of other instruments. You know, talk about Ray and his flute, because there wasn't a lot of flute playing with rock and roll bands back then either. No, no, certainly not. No, I think I think Ray Ray took up flute, I think, when just before Denny left. Denny was a, was was the guitar player just like me there's one guitar player and um and the guitar player ended up singing the songs right um so it it, it could have been ray but uh it, it it turned out bizarrely that it was it was denny and then it was then it was me right. and and i'm so glad that ray did take up flute because for me as an acoustic guitar and the stuff that i was writing was um the flute was a perfect complement to it and they go so well together yeah, I still do that on stage now because they're so beautiful together. It's such an integral part of the Moody sound. And even, you know, yourself on a couple of years later, a couple of albums later, you played sitar on In Search of the Lost Chord. I read that you picked up a sitar being inspired by George Harrison. 
Mm-hmm. I think we all had a go, inspired by George. Yes, George led us down that particular road. And we all went up to the same shop um, at Charing Cross Road and um, at the sitar shop, yeah, the Indian shop. That were, and Graham bought some tablers, nice. which uh, well, I really loved. They were great, because uh, which he used. They're not credited on records, but things like all of those things, they were really nice. And Mike had a tambour, which was the drone thing. Right. We all went up the shop together and we bought these things. I bought a sitar, he bought a tambour, which just went in C. And Graham <laughs> bought his uh, things. I think a lot of people may not realize that this was a rarity back then. You know, you talk about the Buddy Hollies and the Everly Brothers and, you know, even the Marty Wilds and the Cliff Richards and the Shadow. Nobody was experimenting with this style of music until you and the Zombies and the Beatles and the Kinks and some of these other bands back then. But let's let's go deeper into the single catalog. In 1970, you had another hit with the song Question which you wrote about questioning current events, reflecting the thoughts of, of the youth. Was was that something that you were aware of, what was going on in the world with Vietnam and things like that when you wrote Question? Well, where we were playing was at universities and colleges. That was our gig and that was our audience. And I think we just blended in with all of the boys and girls that were that were there, that were in our audience. You know, we hadn't quite made it to top of the bill, so we could walk in and just be fairly anonymous, but just be part of a part of a crowd and um, even staying with people and friends and going to somebody's flat or apartment afterwards. And you know, it, it was uh, it was our our lives. So uh, I think question was a reflection of what was young people were saying at that time. Even though they were college students, they were all your peers age-wise. And yeah. so, of course, you're going to talk to them and find out what they're thinking about and what's going on with their lives. And a song like Question, you know, so brilliantly kind of puts it back into the atmosphere. Why do we never get an answer when we're knocking at the door? With a about hate and death and war Is where we stop and look around us There is nothing that we need In a world of persecution That is burning in its greed The big difference was that conscription, which was the draft, had, had finished in the UK and so boys didn't have to worry about that. But in America, where we were playing, they did have to worry about that. They were being drafted. And uh, I, that was um, made made a big impact on, on us. Yeah. You know, what the Moody's did back then with these American tours and and really, like we talked about the birth of FM stereo radio in America, you really became the quintessential album group or one of the quintessential album groups of the early 70s, whether it was Days of Future Past, Into In Search of the Lost Chord, and then there was On the Threshold of a Dream, To Our Children's Children's Children, A Question of Balance, Every Good Boy Deserves Favor, Seventh Sojourn. These are all classic albums, you know, all platinum gold albums that were released one on top of each other. How did you stay 
so prolific and ended up recording and writing these songs that, you know, 50 years later are still as relevant, widely heard and, and well-known. Was there pressure on you to record so much music so fast? I think there was always a pressure to have the next album, to promote it, to do television shows around it, you know, in Europe and the next tour. You're kind of racing with your head down when you're when you're that young. I think we had something to say, and we felt a, it was almost a kind of duty to go back in the studio. Right, we're back in the studio. The opportunity with a great record company with great engineers to to do recordings, great studios. I loved it. I loved it being in the studio. I just wanted to go back there. But if I went back there, I had to have a song ready to go. Couldn't just turn up and say, what should we do or something. Then me, you said before, as the son of two teachers, I had to I had to have something to something ready. And um, I saw it as a privilege, but it's somewhere I wanted to go back to every time. A lot of people in those days started to forget going on the road and just wanted to be in the studio because it was so nice. <laughs> but I think we never had that option, really. There was always pressure on us to to tour and to help London Records and Decca, you know, who'd um, who'd really helped us. Right. Did you ever struggle? Was there a time as a songwriter where you knew you had to be in the studio and you just couldn't come up with an idea? Well, a lot of the things I think, if I'd have thought about them a bit more, I'd have done them a bit better or differently you know there's i've done a few things that are kind of half songs they kind of work now and i like them but um really i was just under pressure to well that's it you know it's done put the vocal down now uh okay right here we go and that's it right so i can't i can't say that i thought everything was complete and um, not not like now where I, i i go back days later change one little tiny bit and, and it's all happening so quickly yeah it happens in the moment there you do it routine the thing do the take do the vocal it's over right and one thing that is so interesting that the prolific nature of the band with releasing you know an album a year or even two albums a year they kept doing better in america the you know question of balance goes to number three in 70. Every Good Boy Deserves Favor goes to number two in 71. Seventh Sojourn in 72, which also coincides with the label re-releasing Nights in White Satin Radio, goes number one for five weeks. So it goes up, 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 and up, and then the band takes a break. So I would love for you to talk about the break that the band took in the early 70s. And also, we haven't mentioned Tony Clark. I would love for you to touch on Tony's contribution to the band's record producing as well. Well, Tony was a staff producer at Decca for Days of Future Past. And then after Days of Future Past, I think he felt closer to what we were doing rather than being at the beck and call of um you know, a label can call on a staff producer to do lots of different things. So um, I think he wanted to change his life. So he he became, you know, freelance, did some other things. And uh, yeah, so Tony kind of became w- one of us. You know, in a group, you have your own philosophy of life. <laughs> this is a bit deep because it doesn't matter when you're going up and down the M1 in a van 
or you know <laughs> it, it doesn't matter what your philosophy of life it only starts to matter later on when you ha- start to have something yeah. and then you start living that particular idea and those kind of principles and that's maybe what drew us apart that's why i'm leading to 1974 once you started to get something something like it didn't matter when you were all in a van and you had nothing right you know just the petrol for tomorrow and where you were going right. to sleep but once you started to get something in, and you live out your own personal philosophy of life, it started to change. And so that's what really happened in 1974. People got, oh, it sounds so nuts, doesn't it? But philosophically different. You know, they uh, started to pull apart in the way that people lived their lives and wanted to interact with the the world somehow. Well, you were all kids when you started. Success is complicated because you're not the same person as Mike or as Graham or as, you know, anyone else in the band, John, you know. So when you do take a break, you and John make a record together without the other Moody's. And Tony, I believe, produced that record as well, the Blue Jays record. Yeah, we kind of didn't know what else to do. We drifted apart, and it wasn't that there was any split. It's just that we didn't make any plans. There wasn't another tour. There wasn't another studio date booked suddenly. For the first time, there wasn't something in the diary. But Mike and I had talked about making a record together, and just because I had nothing else to do because there were no plans, I was in Los Angeles where Mike was living, and uh, he'd moved to America, and yeah, the, the we t- talked about hey, let's do something together then. If there's nothing else, and then Tony and John turned up in the same place, and the um, Mike said, well, "I don't want to do it anymore. Like it's too much like the the same old thing, you know. I want to do something different." So that's what happened. So we, the three of us came back to the UK, which was great. And and we did Blue Jays, and it was really nice with Tony. And I think that was the life. It had that life, Blue Jays. And then we moved on from that. Right. And then there was that sort of rather lovely. I got really lucky in so much as, you know, I did the record with Jeff Wayne for, with Forever Autumn, The War of the Worlds. Yes. And I and I got at last to do my own solo record and songs like, like everybody in a group wants to do. One day I'll do my solo record right. and that kind of stuff. But all the time, there was a very influential man around us called Jerry Weintraub, who was a manager, who yeah. was always trying to recreate and get back to that um, group, that touring group, that recording group. That's what he really wanted to get back to. And he was the most influential thing in bringing a person and bringing us all back together when we came back together. We actually, we came, me, John, Tony, and Graham, I think, met in an office somewhere and talked about putting a compilation record. That was what happened. I think uh, Walt McGuire at London and um, 
huge model and uh, Hugh Mendel and uh, and Decker had wanted this compilation, which we'd never done before of the previous seven albums and just bits and pieces, unreleased stuff that they had in the can. And the four of us got back together and we thought, oh, this is really quite fun. And then Jerry is like, you guys, you're back. Kind of, you know, it's great. It lives the whole thing. Uh, Jerry Weintraub is a legendary name in America, but not just in music and film and in television and so much that he did. And bringing the Moody's back from hiatus in 78. I would love to talk about Forever Autumn for a second. You mentioned Jeff Wayne's musical version of the War of the Worlds concept album. And you're so well known as such a brilliant songwriter, but Forever Autumn is a song you did not write. Mm hmm. I heard that Jeff Wayne wrote it and wanted the guy who sang Nights in White Satin to sing it and rang you up and said, are you the guy who sang Nights in White Satin? Would you have a go at this song? That song, Forever Autumn, is so beautiful. And it's something that I know you enjoy singing even to this day. You were just on tour with, with The War of the Worlds recently. And... You know, the fact that you didn't write it as a songwriter, does it matter to you? It's such a lovely song. No, it was written by a couple of my very dear friends. That's what's so nice about it. I can't say that I was going to do it. It was only that Jeff did call me and did mention, you know, are, are you the, the one in the group that sang it and uh, sang nights and yeah. So he sent it round to my house and there just happened to be a young lad who worked at the Moody's record store that day. And he heard the demo too. And 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 uh, he, he knew nothing about the Moody's or the, what we've been talking about, Pete, in the last however long it is. But he heard that demo and he said, you ought to do that. Oh. You ought to do that, mate. It's great for you. And it's like, yeah, you think? So I'm so glad I did. I watched the birds fly south across the autumn sky And one by one they disappear I wish that I was flying with them Now you're not It's a lovely song, and you don't get many chances in life to sing really beautiful songs that are just made for you. It was a thrill, and uh, it just worked. You know, Jeff knew that. I knew that when we did it. It was just, that's great. It's just that it didn't come out for quite some time, a couple of years, and I wondered what had happened to it. You recorded it in 76. It didn't come out until 78. That that album, the musical version of the War of the Worlds album, Jeff Wayne's album, all, not only featured you, but also featured, you know, a crazy cast of, of characters. Phil Linett from Thin Lizzy, David Essex, Richard Burton on narration, you know. <laughs> yeah, fantastic stuff. I could never think who was going to buy it, you know, but uh, I think that the A&R, they thought, oh, well, young kids, you know, who like science fiction will buy it. Yes. It was Forever Autumn that made it accessible. For anyone who doesn't know Forever Autumn or has not listened to Forever Autumn in a minute, go back and listen to it. It is absolutely brilliant, brilliantly written and brilliantly sung by Justin. Let's go into that. And recorded, brilliantly recorded, too, by the great engineer. Yes. Yes. Let's go into the 80s for a second, because we're going to start wrapping up in a minute. But, you know, when I was a teenager growing up in New York, I remember turning on the radio and hearing Gemini Dream and hearing The Voice and hearing Your Wildest Dreams. And I know you're out there somewhere. And 
it's not many people, Justin, who can have top 40 radio hits over 20 years in America. But between, you know, 68 and 88, you wrote and sang 20 years worth of hits for the Moody Blues. And that is something that I don't really encounter a lot. So kudos to you for having not only the talent, but the ability to evolve with people's tastes over time where they still wanted to hear your music on the radio. Thank you, Pete. I wish it felt like that, really, because I can't say that we were, um, or me personally, there wasn't ever a moment where we were sort of celebrity or or we were number one or anything like that. We we were just on the edges of, of these things. And I think maybe we benefited from that, of not being the sort of flavor of the month or anything like that. And I think there was a great team. When Sir Edward Lewis died, actually, it was bought by um, a Deutsche Grammophon. Yeah. And part of that was, I think, Phonogram. And there was a whole new team came in in, in America and they just started to look at the way that the records, our, our music was in a different light. They didn't have any influence on what was recorded, but they saw it in a different way. And I knew personally that we had to move on. We had to leave that, uh, the style of things we were doing, we had to move it on just to to something a little bit more um, professional and just uh, slick. And then, you know, we started to get right, started to make demos at home. I got a Lindrum. So the t- time code was an important thing. You you know that the, the beginning of the 80s, time code came in. It's like, oh, great. We can link things to this uh, time code and, and generate instruments through MIDI. And that was a big revelation to me. And I could do it at home and create some of start creating these things at home. And with a great producer and a great group to make it work, then that's changed the, the way that um, our record sounded as well. Well, you mentioned a great producer. And in the 80s, you guys started working for multiple albums with our former podcast guest, Tony Visconti, the great record producer from T-Rex and David Bowie. And I know that he contributed more than just um, producing the record. He actually played on some of the records as well. Yeah, he did. Yeah. That bass in Wildest Dream. That's Tony. That was his style. He liked to be in the middle of that. T- Tony is one of those producers who will twiddle the knobs, play the music, particularly the bass, and make it sound nice. Once upon a time, once when you were mine, I remember skies reflected in your eyes. I wonder where you are. I wonder. And you enjoyed working with Tony, didn't you? Oh, I we were asked to do a thing for the BBC together, which we did. And we both thought, oh, this is great. And it's good fun. And I love the discipline of the way Tony worked. It was good for us in the band to work from 11 in the morning till seven at night. And that's it. And if it, if you, it, you, no matter if you were in the middle of something brilliant, you walked away at seven o'clock at night and you could come back the next day and it would be there. You didn't need to stay all night getting deeper and deeper into it. So um, 
yeah t- t- tony uh, is a, is a, was a good friend then and um such an influence on those records i think all of those producers were pip pip williams alan tarney tony visconti chris neal you know they they put a, a touch and a flavor to the moody blues that was quite new and kind of sparkling and that they th- saw the songs in a slightly different light which was great well it's key you know, to change and evolve with the producer so that the band sound can evolve and be competitive, you know, decade through decade through decade. And I know how much you enjoy performing live. You're actually touring this year. Yes, I'm I'm out this year. I've already been out, I've done some gigs in Florida and I did a cruise this year, which was great. And last year was a really busy year for me. I did a couple of American tours and had the most successful time I've ever had playing in the UK, which was a, re- a real joy. And I'm I'm with um, some young musicians now that I admire and I just love being with, and that that is a real joy. You know, Mike, Mike Dawes, I would give Mike Dawes a mention. If you see him and T- Tommy Emmanuel playing anywhere, go, go and see them. It'll, you'll, it'll turn you on. Yep. And uh, Julie Reagans, who was with the Moody's as well, who I brought to the Moody's as uh, one of the greatest musicians I've ever known and vocalist. And Carmen Gould on flute is, you know, a, a young, brilliant, um, young, young genius of a player and uh, and a teacher. And uh, these, these people are lovely to be around. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So when my next outing, when people go and see you, Justin Hayward on tour, they will hear everything that they want to hear. All the Moody Blues records, Forever Autumn, your solo things, anything that was inspiring to them then will still be inspiring to them now. Oh, thank you. I hope so. Yeah, they'll also hear my new my new record, Living for Love. So well, couldn't get get through that without giving it a plug. Absolutely, "Living for Love" was released in late January of 2023, just um, a few months ago from the date that we are recording this. And my final question: obviously, the music that you and John and Mike, as the surviving members of the Moody Blues, made together. Are you in touch with these guys? Is communication still open? The music that you created together is so, you know, so important and so brilliant. Just have to ask if if you three still communicate with each other. Absolutely, Moody's has a life, and it's um it's a family, and it's the the Moody Blues music is there, and you can't help but being part of that. So yes, we're in touch, and um, it's the music that always brings us together, and it's the music that lives on. Can thank you for your time today, Justin Hayward. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Pete. I'll see you soon. Make a promise, take a vow, trust your feelings, it's easy now. Understand the voice within and feel the change already beginning. Oh, won't you tell me again? Oh, can you feel it? Oh, won't you tell me again? Thanks a lot to our guest this week, Justin Hayward. You can connect with Justin at his website, justinhayward.com. There are tour dates in the U.S. and Canada upcoming for the spring and summer, including a run with Christopher Cross. You can also visit the Moody Blues website at moodybluestoday.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode 
of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.